Welcome to the first podcast with Danielle and Elvin. Um, <laughs> starting, kicking off the first podcast right by oversleeping. This is what, <laughs> this is what Elvin does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was fantastic. I was like, because all I could think of, um, because you're in Singapore and I'm in Bangkok. So I was like, maybe he meant 1130 um, Bangkok time. And I thought maybe you were still training. And then I was like, or maybe you're still sleeping. Or maybe you had a really fantastic night and that was still happening. So I was... <laughs> I was just waiting. <laughs> oh, good. Well, no, that's, I mean, isn't that what life's all about? It is. How are you? I was up, yeah, I'm okay. I've been up since, well, so I've been up since 6 a.m. to contrast you. I slept in for an extra hour because um, I'd been changing up a lot of my workouts lately. So I had um, really solid doms last night. It was like I could feel the muscle soreness. So I decided to sleep in an extra hour. Nice. And um, yeah, yeah. So I woke up and then, I went to the gym again, as you do, and I was actually told we're about to go into an official lockdown again. So Bangkok is about to have its, um, we had a lockdown in January, but it's a proper one. But I don't know if you've seen the news, um, infection rates um, and deaths right now are off the charts at the moment. We've had some really bad um, clusters and um, hospitals, hospitals are actually kind of struggling to deal with the demand at the moment. And we've opened up field hospitals and hospitals, which are hotels that have kindly offered um, their services to house COVID patients. So it's pretty bad. It's way worse than it was last year when we were fully locked down. And yeah, it was, um, it's a very different experience. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I mm. haven't seen the news, but my apprentice contestant has told me about the, the Bangkok clusters. And they sound very oh. bad, so I've purposefully not seen the news. How are you? No, I'm good. Um, I know. I think the thing actually, what was interesting with the news in Thailand is they've kind of almost downplayed it. They're like, yes, infections are bad. Um, but I think also the government was really reluctant to lock everything down because of the impact on the economy. Mm. So I think they've, you know, not well, I think they've downplayed it, but it actually people were still getting panicked and concerned. And it was really interesting phenomenon. So I was in um, Kasamui and Kolpanyan uh, for a couple of weeks and I got back last Monday evening and or sorry, it was Monday afternoon. I, um, I got back and like a lot of my friends had got back around the same time and I had friends in Bangkok and everybody was feeling a bit under the weather, myself included. I'd had a headache where I actually thought I had dengue again, except I didn't have the rash, but I'd had loads of friends that had sore throats and coughs. And my boxing coach had um, a fever on Friday. And I know because uh, he comes to my house to do privates with me and he was absolutely freaked out. So he had to go get tested and um, he tested negative, but he, like everybody here was um, really concerned. But it was interesting because loads of people were starting to feel like, you know, symptoms and become more aware of them. And I wonder if, you know, because of all the news and, you know, some of the, the panic or concern and anxiety had, I was talking to somebody about this last night, not generated the symptoms, but made us more aware and sensitive to symptoms which might already be there. And, you know, then you start to worry. I think that may be a medical term for this, like COVID panic or something. Well, it probably is. But I mean, even, you know, think about this. If you look up a symptom on, you know, Google, yeah. um, like, and seriously, like one or two clicks later, you're like, oh shit, I have cancer. <laughs> you start to feel all the symptoms and you're like, because it's, you know, it's that thing that you start to, to get really sensitive about stuff and you start to realize that um, your brain or your awareness um, can really impact your own reality. 
and I agree. I do like web web MD myself and like oh my god I have this thing. <laughs> but it's really easy to do it. Although I mean the interesting thing, um, because I do this a lot with uh, my clients, like when I do coaching and therapy now, is because you have people that tend to panic a lot or consider the worst case scenario and they get really anxious. And then I always say, okay, well you have to to keep a balance because life is all about balance, which is, you know, if you're in a balanced state, you're generally, it's easier for you to kind of be in the present moment. So I always say, if you're going to consider the worst case scenario or you're going to panic, then, you know, I'm like, you also owe it to yourself to kind of consider the best case scenario. And with these, instead of like, obviously with WebMD, you can't be like, well, I'm going to live forever. But what you do realize is, you know, you can kind of change your perspective and also kind of deal with your own anxiety by what you choose to focus on. Right. And you know, like meditative practices. So, but yeah, it was, it's been a, it's been a very like strange like week. And then because it was about a year, it was almost a year ago, we locked down at the start of April last year. And it was just when I'd kind of like landed back. I remember the last day that everything was open. I had mm-hmm. just, I was just about to move into my apartment from the hotel and I had to go buy all these supplies wow. and yeah, because and all the borders had shut from all the different countries last year. So um, the other interesting thing was we didn't have supplies like that you would normally be able to order online because everybody was shut down. Whereas um, I think this time it's only going to be Thailand because Singapore is quite safe still, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. Although I heard uh, infection rate spiked again. I can't believe we're having this conversation. I remember when um, <laughs> infection rate has spiked again. Like, I feel like we're in like, the end times or something like that. So strange. Like, well, uh... did I tell you um, over my holiday, I um, so I'm part of a book club, but I had actually picked up this book before yes. the book club. And um, this is why I decided to join. Yeah. So Albert um, Camus. Is it pronounced Camus? I, okay. So I, I thought it was Camus my whole life. And then so like, did I. somebody told me it was Camus. So I'm okay. just going to go out on a limb and say it's Camus. No, no. It's <laughs> Somebody had done that to me. They're like, Camus? And I was like, well, I've always said Camus. Yeah. And part of my thing <laughs> because I haven't looked it up yet and I was like well so yeah no I'm like is it Camus or Camus so Albert Camus Albert Camus we'll just um, call him I- Camus because <laughs> we are fancy people <laughs> I am I'm actually I have like cacao you know in my coffee this morning I do feel a bit bougie no. oh shit actually it because this is going to go online I'm sure that there will be like heaps of comments from people about exactly how to pronounce it so i'm, I'm sure the grammar the grammar brigade yeah but then do we sound pretentious and hipster it's okay it's, it's i like the hipster quote okay oh cool <laughs> I'm, I'm, all, I'm all about eating at hipster places and hipster cafes but I'm, I'm a singaporean chinese <laughs> No, and it's like I'm some bougie old Angmo, you know, middle-aged woman. I I get it. I'm totally, I'm totally down with it. But I would always like, I'm always kind of like people are like, so, but you're a hipster, and I'm like, I don't think anybody would call me a hipster, but I really enjoy hanging out in those places and buying things that hipsters buy. So I think if there was a Venn diagram, there's certainly a crossover between me and hipsters. But I don't know if I'd get that. But yeah, oh, back to Camus. Um, but yeah, I'd read uh, The Plague. And I actually, that was what had made me join the book club because I was like, oh shit, I have this book. And and I actually read a couple of books before that. Okay. And so I was reading The Plague on holiday. And it was, um, he had written it after being in the war, in the Second World War. The Plague is, um, you know, basically the bubonic plague comes to this um, small, you know, Algerian, like fictional town. And right. it's just how it 
you're going into lockdown and and again how the crowd behaves and yes so it was one of these weird things because um there's a few books like this that i've i've read i'll pick up you know every so often that are literally timeless so Mm -hmm. george orwell's 1984 right i read it in the 1990s um as as a teenager and i was like wow this is so relevant and then i picked it up in you know the 2000s and the noughties and again i was like wow this is so relevant and, yeah. you know, I'd read it about five years ago. Every time I read 1984, I was like, there's always something that you can, you know, kind of relate to. Or there's something going on in terms of politics that we're dangerously close to the precipice of, you know, complete oppression and, you know, double, double think. And, and so it was really interesting because with the, <laughs> the plague, I was like, holy shit, this is going to be one of those books, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's also kind of shows that we as human beings, I don't know, kind of we as much as we like to think we're different and special and somehow more evolved um we're not you know we basically are you know almost like these like programs that you know kind of run and there are you know a very few outcomes that are are most likely to happen you know and given any (laughs) or it's kind of liberating you're like well if none of this is real then i'm just free to sit back and enjoy it i don't have to be anymore you're just like does it matter and you're like i'm in the simulation this is great Mm. Um, this reminds me of it's. It's so funny you brought this up because I was just thinking about Orwell just now. Oh really? Um, yeah, for some reason. Oh, I love Animal Farm. Have you read um, Down and Out in London and Paris? I haven't. You've recommended me this book before. It's only because I've been homeless, and to be honest with you, George Orwell captured homelessness beautifully. Really? Um, it, the whole experience. Yes, I I absolutely loved it. Um, and again, a lot of his writing. Maybe this is why he's iconic, is his writing is almost transcendent of, you know, the time and place. Because as you know, somebody who grew up in, in you know, North America in Boston or the Boston suburbs, I could totally relate to so many of his writings. Animal Farm, um, yeah, nineteen eighty four, and even keep the Aspidistra flying. Like Orwell was just he really understands the human condition and I think that's what makes some of these books classics is that anyone anywhere in the world at any time can pick them up and go, holy shit, I feel this. It resonates. I know he's one of your favorite authors, if not your favorite. Well, I like Murakami as well. What about you? Who are your favorite authors? Oh, I mean, I like the... the, Oh, you're Bukowski. (laughs) No, screw you. Author of a certain memoir. Um, well, I'm also a big fan of Alvin Ong. I absolutely devour his medium articles. <laughs> you have great taste. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> so do you. <laughs> um, yeah, I like Bukowski. I like Fante. I like those guys. It, I don't know. They just. Mm-hmm. I think I'm. I'm just in this period of my life. No, I mean, I think that's the beauty of you know authors is we have people that touch us you know at various stages throughout our life. There are certain mm-hmm. writers that. I absolutely adored when I was younger. And as I got older, it's not that I didn't like them anymore, but I found that I had changed, you know, and and kind of grew as a person. And I could still see that they're really talented writers, but it's like there are certain friends that you bring throughout your entire life's journey. And then there are other friends that you have that you are super tight with in your teens, your twenties or your thirties or early childhood. And Mm. you might not necessarily be now. And it doesn't negate the friendship in any way because there was so much you took from it in that time. But as you grow up, you're like, meh. And then there are other friends that like 
you know, I've had since I was a young girl and I, you know, I still talk to them and, you know, we still pick up and, and can relate on different things. I feel like authors are like that. Right. I agree. It's like, it's almost like books are mirrors. Um, they reflect mm. who you are and where you are now. The most beautiful thing, uh, one of my favorite <laughs> things to do with both friends and books is to so so just rediscover them at a different point of my life. Mm. If I were to reread something from my childhood, I'd be like, oh, like I missed this out. If I reconnect from like yes. with a friend from ten or fifteen years ago, I'd be like, wow, like how much we both have changed, right? It's a real yeah. Interesting- no, I think you're right, actually. Um, and again, it is, it's some of that thing, although sometimes like you find with a book or with a friend, like you reread it and you're like, oh, I don't relate to it. Or there are certain books that I absolutely loved when I was younger that I'll read now and they're still good, but you know, you're almost so distant from them. Mm. I always I, think of books as portals. Yeah. Um, we've had this conversation before. Oh, yeah, we have. <laughs> Um, yeah, me too. Because now I can lock it. I'm like, I know I said this. <laughs> yeah, 25th April, 2021. <laughs> yeah, right. You said this, and if I ever promise you something, now you can be like, Yo, we made a bet. You said. <laughs> Boom. I will have to, to give the plate a read because mm. it does sound. I, you, you're not the only like brilliant person to be recommending this book. Like, I think Ryan Holiday was like, everybody should read the plate. Absolutely. Right now, it's so relevant. But the other interesting thing is it's quite a short read. So mm. it's, um, I wouldn't say it's a novella, but it's close. So it's, it's, you know, it's not like Dostoevsky or, you know what I mean? Certain books you read, you, yeah. you open them and you're like, oh, shit, I'm going to be here for a while. Right. Uh, but yeah, but The Plague, I'd managed to do it on holiday. And I did find that there were certain parts that really sucked you in. But interestingly, just like with what's happening now, there were certain parts that just dragged on interminably. He, um, he was quite good in terms of fleshing out the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because apparently the plague was more of a metaphor um, for his experiences with Nazi Germany and, you know, just kind of like fascism and the idea that fascism right. had overtaken stuff. So it was um, rather than, you know, an actual disease, it was an idea that had been infecting people. Right. Uh, but he had written in such a way, apparently he's quite, you know, he's quite political himself, mm-hmm. that he had written it in such a way that he really tried to stay away from um, anything overtly political as if I think he was worried to, you know, he was going to somehow diminish the message or alienate people, which mm-hmm. actually, so this was really interesting. I was um, I was talking to a good friend of mine. I went to go see an art exhibition yesterday. It was like this tiny gallery and we're the only two people there. Um, and it was basically on, you know, Black Lives Matter. And it was um, here in Bangkok. And it was just interesting. They had a local photographer and now I'm totally going to have to find the details of it and explain it, you know, tell you who it is to name drop it properly. But the conversation we were having was um, kind of around science fiction. I absolutely Mm -hmm. love science fiction and and speculative fiction uh, myself. And it's basically because it allows the author the freedom to talk about stuff that people get sensitive about or that politically they may not be allowed to. So um, here in Thailand, we have um, Lesse Majeste. So, you know, if you talk about royalty and stuff, oh, you're going to be able to do that. (laughs) And it's any any of the royalty. Like even if I was to put down the Queen of England, that would have, you know, that Mm. could affect me here. So they're really strict about that. Um, yeah, it's called um, You Don't Have to Be Black to Be Outraged. And it's a photo- 
photographic exhibition by Justin Mills, and it's running till the 26th of June, and it's it's quite powerful. But I was talking to him about it because I'd said, um, you know, when you're writing fiction or you're writing science fiction, you're able to really explore themes that, you know, ordinarily might trigger people or turn them off completely. There was that, did I tell you about that? What is it? It's a short film from Netflix, the the two distant um, two distant strangers. Sorry, two distant strangers. Now I sound like I'm old, and I'm like, or oh, head trauma, always put me down. Um, but yeah, it was um, what is it? Yeah, two distant strangers. It's on Netflix, and it was a 30 minute short film. Did I tell you about this? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, it's a sci-fi, you know, time loop short film. Um, you know, about um, police violence against that in the Afro-American community, but it's really well done and very compelling. Okay. And again, it kind of goes the science fiction route to really drive home a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I just find that, you know, with Camus uh, doing the plague and really focusing on the plague, he's now written something that is a tremendously relevant, you know, for here and now for all of us globally. But then, you know, he's also written something that really makes you think about you know, the viral nature of ideas and thoughts and beliefs. Mm. Really cool. Yes. Speculative fiction is, is is something that is very tricky. Neil Gaiman has written a beautiful article about, about this. Um, Did he? Topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he was saying that, and I agree with him, that there's value in speculative fiction. And funnily enough, I'm reading, a, a, I'm reading Jordan Peterson's uh, book about, about this as well. And... Hmm. Um, they both, he wrote a book on speculative fiction. Uh, the first chapter of Beyond Order is about is essentially about the power of myths. So, so oh. he argues that we 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 all build stories out of ourselves, out of the stories we tell ourselves, right? So, of course, that's all of our identity. Um, yeah. Young and Freud are big Born. proponents of that. I wrote that article in Medium on that. The stories, you know, um, mm-hmm. what is it? The yeah, the the way our words. Oh my God, story of your life. That's what I called it. Shit, you write something and then you figure out what you called it. Right. This is why I'm not a best-selling author. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, you agreed yourself. Um, no. <laughs> so, uh, it's, so it's Jordan always... Peterson wrote this article. Tell me more. Sorry. Uh, sorry. It's a it's a genre that has always fascinated me because it it's often derided by people, but but Gaiman and and Peterson argues that it's the most valuable. Genre out of the above, and I think it's derided by people because it's very difficult to nail it. So like Camus nails it, and and George Orwell of course nails it. But if you do it poorly, it, it's almost like a parody of itself. Have you? It's like it's like no, a know. horror movie where where it's funny instead of instead of like scary, right? But I also think that people get afraid of these things. Um, I have a lot of friends, you know, um, now, actually loads of people I know now um, don't really read fiction as much. People mm-hmm. are really happy to read self-help and, and something that's going to be valuable to them. And I just had this conversation uh, with a friend of mine last week that I said, fiction is so incredibly important. I mean, fiction was what enabled me to kind of get through my toughest years. Um, growing up as a girl, fiction is so important because it shows you what could be possible and it allows you to kind of step outside, you know, the box of or confines of what this reality 
or, you know, kind of like the social constructs are where you're living and the time you're living and the place you're living to show you what can be possible. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to kind of dream and imagine. This is where, um, this is exactly what I mean when I say that books are like portals. And literally I have a a book, I have a book about portals, you know, like physical portals within the world, meditation portals and dimensional portals. And they talk about books and even your phone, but Mm -hmm. it's the idea that it's a small, effectively a door. And when you think about when you open a book, it is like, opening a door except you know this portal goes within your brain and you tend to go into an alpha state um when you're reading it's almost like a meditative state where Mm -hmm. you begin to imagine you know the characters and the places and the locations and as you're able to do that you know it kind of builds out these beautiful um like imaginariums within your own mind of places and people and experiences and it shows you that you know different um narratives are possible you know, growing up, you're told one thing all the time, like you'll never amount to anything or, you know, girls can't do this or, and again, I mean, you know, insert your own childhood limitations here. But what ends up happening when you read is you're like, but this is possible. You know what I mean? This character has, and again, like when you look at like the hero's journey, you know, or, you know, all the different story archetypes, like the hero's journey really does show you that the hero completely transforms himself through, you know, this entire journey that they go on uh, when all hope is lost and very often they forge new paths. So Mm. they start out in one place and then they end up entirely renewed as a person with a completely different perspective. And, you know, they've kind of carved their own path. And I feel like those narratives actually probably exactly what Peterson is saying is it's incredibly important for us to be able to think like that so that when we hit a roadblock at work or in our day-to-day lives, we can be like, yeah, but what if we still try? Because people say no to you all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, my entire life is people are like, you'll never be able to do that. And I'm like, well, um, okay, I'm going to try anyway. Because, you know, I'm not going to take somebody else's version of, you know, what's possible. Mm-hmm. It's like I had that friend who was um, a wrestler and she, she fucked up her knee really badly. And the doctor's like, you'll never compete again. And she was like on the brink of suicide. And then my husband at the time had said to her, you know, he's like, yeah, but the doctor's not an athlete. He's a doctor. Yeah. And athletes are constantly pushing the boundaries of what's possible physically for human beings. And she did compete again. And it's that idea that, you know, it's kind of not taking somebody else's version of what's possible. I mean, if you try and then it's not possible for you, then at least, you know, you've tried and you've yeah. explored it. There's other shit you pick up on the way. But this that's is, where I think connection's valuable. This is almost, oh, thank you for for sharing that with me, by the way. Uh, I should send you that Gaiman article. He mentions the exact same yeah. that you did. The value of speculative fiction is... is oh, shit. Yeah. Gaiman. Written article. <laughs> um, and you, 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 you do you. seem to have an affinity with this European, or should I say English, uh, writers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I love Gaiman. So when I was... Oh, man. When I was a teenager, he had written the Death Trilogy. Right. Um, and I had actually, I used to have the original pressing. My ex-husband now has all of my comics, but there was this boy who worked at a comic book store and I didn't realize it at the time, but he had a bit of a crush on me and he gave me all of the original pressing. Of, I think it's a DC Vertigo imprint of um, Neil Gaiman's Death Trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. And then I, I really got into a lot of his writing. Um, oh God, Neverwhere and obviously American. Love Neverwhere. Isn't it brilliant? And again, it's the whole theme with doors. And if you know London, he really flips like all the different areas of London on its head. Like mm-hmm. he had done such an exquisite job with that. I, yeah, no, I have a, I have a huge soft spot for Gaiman. I, I love his work. I've read an interview where 
Gaiman said, Neverwhere is a, an allegory about homelessness. That doesn't surprise me at all. Having been homeless and having seen what he has done with it, I can completely see that. Absolutely. Mm. I think that might be one of the reasons why I really enjoyed it. My ex-husband liked it okay, but he wasn't as big a fan of, of Gaiman as I was. I think he was more into Terry Pratchett, actually. Okay. Hmm. Who's a, he's another like he's like a fantasy fiction or a speculative fiction author from the UK. I'm not as big of a Terry Pratchett reader as I am Gaiman, actually, though. Me too. Yeah, I, I think Gaiman's better. Oh, sorry, Terry Pratchett. <laughs> sorry, hearing this, <laughs> Terry Pratchett's like, "Fuck you, kids! Get off of my lawn!" No, I th- <laughs> fuck this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Those asshole." Terry Pratchett's not even reading it, but all of his fans are like, "Fuck those two people." <laughs> and all of a sudden you get like a massive flamers and you're like okay <laughs> or it's like one person and their dog and they're like screw you bitches i don't know never wear and gaiman just in general has this special ability to he's almost murakami like he just takes you to this like, yeah. strange place right yeah but and yeah see murakami is another one of my favorites i uh loved what is it dance 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 and hard-boiled wonderland and the edge of the world is literally one of my like all-time favorites okay but Murakami sees all these cool things. Although, have you noticed this with authors? Um, many authors have like that one harbinger or hallmark that shows you, you know, it's it's kind of their thing. And like with Murakami, I think he has like either a fetish. He has a thing about earlobes. Oh, really? Yeah. And every one of his books, there seems to be a mention about like one of the, the female characters' earlobes. And I was like, oh, you kinky guy. But it was just like, it was, I mean, I like, don't get me wrong. I love touching people's earlobes to the point, like, what is it? Me, um, Prayut Chattachan, <laughs> the, the, the prime minister here. Oh, Have you wow. heard about because he's done that before with like uh, with reporters, he'll touch their earlobes. Really? I mean, I don't just yeah. I, oh yeah. So the prime minister of Thailand, what is it? A few years ago, like he was at a press conference, and some reporter had said something to him, and he literally went up and fondled those earlobes and then walked off. And I was like, that is awesome. And like there was another time, um, something controversial was occurring, and he literally came out with like a, a cardboard cutout of himself. And he put it out and he was like, he's going to answer your questions today. And he just walked off. (laughs) And there's a, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh my God. I was like, props to you. And like last year, even because there were a lot of, there, and there still are a lot of protests happening right now um, around democracy and um, actually the Lesse Majest in Thailand. And it was so funny because he last year, he was like, I don't even want this job anymore. He's like, if anyone thinks they can do the prime minister job, he's like, step right up. He's like, I'm done. (laughs) I was like, so from what like, little I've seen, they I've seen the Prayut get out demonstrations, right? Yes, yeah. Prayut clearly does not give a fuck. He was just literally like, whatever. Then put somebody else in here. I think because he's just like, this is a pain in the ass job. I don't want it anyways. He'd much rather be like, I don't know, partying or fondling earlobes. <laughs> <laughs> is he a good prime minister? Like, he's obviously um, not a very popular one right now. Okay, I know this sounds weird, but you know, how would you define a good prime minister? Like, honestly, like when I think about it last year during the lockdown, he actually did do a great job. I would say the comms piece was terribly done. But in terms of infection rates and, you know, containing the disease, he did okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, his response um, to the protests last year 
was uh, surprising because um, what was it in 2013 when they, they'd had the protest before, like, I mean, there was a lot of blood spilled um, and it was very aggressive. There was a lot of police violence and these ones were uh, remarkably less violent. You know, we did have some issues with water cannons, but I think his response wasn't nearly so heavy handed and it was quite interesting. Um, I wouldn't say he's like the best prime minister. I mean, as a good prime minister, it's, it's such a tricky thing because you have basically it's like going, you know, if you if you look at a band, Maroon 5, for instance, okay. can you name any of the other? Can you do you know who Maroon like you're familiar with Maroon 5, yeah, yeah. right? The guy with all the tattoos and the, yeah. the singer. Can you think of any of the other guys in the band? That is true. Right. right. And so what you think of like a prime minister, it's almost like, you know, the lead singer of Maroon 5 or the lead singer of, um, oh gosh, oh, what's that other band? Uh, Coldplay, Chris Martin. So, you know what I mean? Like, there's Chris Martin, and then it's like, who are the other guys? And so, you know, are you like, does Coldplay suck? You know, or Radiohead even? Like, it's like, you can, you know, the lead singer, and then you're just like, who's the rest of those guys? Right. And, you know, you start to think, like, you know, is that guy a good singer? And it's like, well, he's a good singer, you know, and the band is really good. It's just like, but it's, he, I think Pryute is one figurehead of, you know, kind of a grander power scheme, because you also, again, have the monarchy. Yeah. Has... A lot of power over here. Um, a lot of money too. A lot of money, a lot of power, and again, I think that creates limitations. You know, when you're a prime minister, or when you're a political leader. I mean, even the president. Like, when you look at, um, you know, any president, you know, in the U.S. or any world leader. I mean, there's an entire cabinet that all also has to answer. I think the only exception would be like Lee Kuan Yew. Like, I feel like Lee Kuan Yew single-handedly did everything in Singapore and there were people advising him and helping him. But if he wanted something done, he was like, yo, fuck you, sit back. This is what we're doing. And yeah. he did it. Like, that guy was gangster as fuck. And I think he was one of the few people that you could say like that guy, you know, that guy was the one leading everything. You know, it was his plan. He brought in a lot of good people to advise him, but he had final say. I don't think that's the case with Prayut. Yeah, this is a. I mean, that was a rare time in 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 history and in Singapore history. When are you gonna get a, a developing nation? Oh my god! But it was exquisite. He got it so right. Do you know what? It, like seriously, it was such a huge fucking pivot. Yeah. Um, everything he did. I know it sounds really weird. Like I have a massive heart on for Lee Kuan Yew because it was just. And there were loads of things that you know. I, I definitely he broke a lot of eggs to make that omelet, and there was a lot right. of shady shit that went down. Like. And I'll absolutely, you know, 100%. It's like you can see both ends of it. But for him to, what is it, like cry on national television about everything that had happened with Malaysia and then to come back even stronger. Mm -hmm. And again, it was just like everything that he did, you know, for Singapore and with Singapore. Like that was, it was that whole thing. Um, I think I told you when, you know, I wrote it in the book as well. You know, it was the whole thing with the caning um, where I was just like, you know, Bill Clinton was like, hey, can you not cane this guy? And, you know, Lee Kuan Yew was like, no, we'll give him like one stroke less, but he's still totally For you, I will give him a discount. <laughs> yeah, but that was nice. It's, it's very Singaporean. Yeah. <laughs> 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 discount, la. You know, it's like, no, that's yeah, it. We're, we're, we're your yeah. cane. But yeah. it was that, it was remarkable. So, you know, so even for like the Michael Faye thing, and I remember when that happened, I was like, for a country like the size of Singapore to stand up to the U.S., which was, you know, this huge economic superpower and to be like, you know, no law, you know, he's still getting caned. And I was like, wow. And then, you know, when you look at all of the stuff that had happened, like, you know, Singapore is Singapore is a force to be reckoned with. And yes, you're right. It was like one of those like unique times. But there are so many people that I think get 
you know, get their hands on power and they fuck it up. Like it almost felt like he did have that big vision and he stayed focused on it. Yeah, that that's the reason why I I admire people who who are selfless and don't give a fuck. Like like Lee Kuan Yew, mm. what what really struck me was was just a little thing that he did after he died. He really made sure to make sure that there wasn't any like hero worship of him. He didn't want uh, he didn't want like yeah. places named after him or like a statue. Like he explicitly said like this should not be done. Because he wanted yeah. he wanted the next generation to take over, right? So this is such a man thing to do. Like he knew like he knew if, if nobody would do that. Yeah. He doesn't want like a cult worship. And that's awesome. No, it's huge. But I mean think about it. Like most people I think, you know, the reason why most of us do stuff is either for money or fame or legacy. Mm-hmm. Like you're right, he was it was a really selfish selfless thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. He also didn't but give now- a fuck. Like there was no. there's literally quotes of him online just like <laughs> just like like we have to like we have to cane people who spit on the floor, like we have to do this. Like anybody else who disagrees is free, is free to come at me in a culty sack. Everybody knows I carry around a big axe in my back. He literally said this. And oh like, you're God. not happy with me, like, you have to put on knuckle dusters to take me on. Like, there is Damn. no other way to govern a Chinese society. <laughs> oh, that's, he's gangster. I mean, it was, like, it was super gangster, wasn't it? Like, I, but it's that weird thing, because when you think of Singapore, there's also, what's the name of the, the good, the good-natured, um, good-mannered lion, the lion of friendship? What is his name? Lion he's of friendship? Gonna, yeah, he's like the little cartoon lion spokesperson. I think they were going like, to, do away with him. What was his name? I can't remember. It's like singer or something like that. You can't even remember him. He's so nice and caring and nobody remembers him. But it's like (laughs) when you think of Singapore, you think of like this really nice, like friendly nation. Nobody spits. Nobody swears. But it's like... There's a reason, people. There's a reason. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But it's like, and then you have like Lee Kuan Yew, who's like this like axe axe carrying gangster, who's like, you want us toe-to-toe with me? (laughs) Like everybody like knows I carry around a big sharp axe in my back. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> no, but that's fucking epic. I mean, just <laughs> the contrast, right? Of like this, like super clean, super orderly, tidy nation, and then he's like, I carry an axe, motherfuckers. And yeah. like, <laughs> I think he meant it metaphorically, but like, still, you know, this was a speech or something. <laughs> But even to say something like that, it's just, it's it's awesome. I don't know. So no, I quite, I would say that like, you know, is Prayu like Lee Kuan Yew? No, no, he's not. But I mean, that's right. the thing, that's such an outlier. You know, what a good prime minister or a good president or a good leader is such an outlier. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard, I think, for them to, to do that because again, like, it's not usually just you. Like, there's an entire, there's all of Coldplay or all of Maroon 5. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, I don't know, insert your own favorite band name here. Um, but it's it's a thing that you're kind of fighting against the tide. And I think very, very rarely do you have somebody who's such a strong leader that, you know, they're running things and they can they can delegate all of it and they have a vision and, and everyone's on board. I mean, mm-hmm. well, you do that. You have, um, you have, the, you know, you have BJJ Singapore. Well, I was say you run. Time. No, but you do. You run an event, so I mean, you know better than anybody. Like it's not just you running that event. You have people that work with you, correct? You're mm-hmm. not just around. You know, funnily enough, running uh, my own little business has mm. made me a lot more empathetic towards people in power. Because mm-hmm. Marcus had this great quote in Meditations. It's not often quoted, but he goes, mm. like, "Kingship is making decisions." 
and making good decisions and having people hate you for it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so you, you just like these people. Have you seen like the aging process of like U.S. presidents? Like like Barack Obama just got like old as fuck. Oh yeah, like, no, they eight years, right? But of course he did. There's Be- a reason. It's like yeah, yeah. Every you have to make. Do you have gray hairs now? No, I don't. But oh, okay. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, <laughs> now I was like, wait, how many gray hairs do you have? Yeah, but still, like, <laughs> decision making fatigue is a real thing, and yes. Well, remember, when I worked as a dominatrix, like I, this is the thing because there's that whole. You know, it's this really sad stereotype of like, you know, the powerful businessman who goes to see the dominatrix to be tied up and, you know, be told what to do or to wear diapers. And it's decision making fatigue. Like, I can tell you um, anybody who I have dated, like probably, oh, my God, since I've been married, because I'm usually, you know, a high earner, you know, and I'm giving orders at work and stuff like that. I'm doing a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So if I go out like for dinner, (laughs) you know, if somebody's like, where do you want to eat? And it's like. Oh, for fuck's sake. I don't know. Oh, I've been right. making decisions all day. It's like, you know, it's like, you know me well enough. Pick a really nice restaurant that has steak and we'll go. Mm. Pick a yeah. really nice restaurant that has steak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not hard. Like, that's 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 literally it. It's like, I enjoy steak and occasionally just like raw fish. So it's like good sushi or good steak. And mm. but yeah, when somebody's like, where do you want to go for dinner? And it's like, really? Like you're asking, I was like, I don't want to make that decision because it is, it's like even the clothes I wear, I have my closets full of the same outfit and I literally don't have to right. think I get rest in the morning. <laughs> like George Jetson yeah. or Trump Brown, you just take the same thing out or one of three outfits out of your you know wardrobe. And so you have less and less decisions so you can focus on work. And yeah, if I'm leading a team or something, um, it's, yeah, I mean, you're constantly having to tell people what to do, make decisions, make calls, make judgments. Like King Solomon, like, when you ever look, read the, you know, the, the tales of Solomon, and you're like, oh, my God, like, he was a solid dude, like, making all those decisions and, like, you know, being able to kind of, like, do that at a call, like, way back when, you're just like, shit. Yeah, these people, like, the, the, the good ancient emperors oh. or kings really are really a, a model for me. Um, or really and it's going to be hard. you're born into it. Like, nobody voted, like, a lot of those dudes in because it was like, you know, if you're a king or an emperor, it's usually, you know, you're one in a line. Yeah. Was Solomon, was Solomon born in the purple? Like, was his dad the, the king? Or Oh, gosh. This I don't know. Now I'm curious. It's usually these people who are fucked up. Like, so, so Marcus yeah. Aurelius' son was, yeah. was, like, Commodus was really, was really fucking bad emperor, but Aurelius, who was voted uh, into kingship, was, was mm-hmm. one of the best emperors ever. So... But I think yes, I was going to say, or like business. So again, if you're, you know, if you had to fight for things and you had to go through that entire journey, Mm. you, you know, you become a self-made leader or, and again, I mean, maybe you just get lucky. I don't know about Aurelius, but you know, it is oftentimes that you find like children will struggle. And I think you're also struggling under the pressure and expectation of, you know, filling your parents' shoes. You know, if they were, my daughter didn't want to do anything remotely close to what I did right. um I remember I felt bad when she was a teenager like and I was I had my fight career and I was writing and it was like whenever we were out together if people met my daughter and they're like oh you're gonna be just like your mother and like she would she would have this huge eye roll and she's like I don't want to do anything my mother does mm-hmm. and it was I totally understood and respected it because it was like you know she must have been tired of hearing it and it's like you know because she's her own individual person and mm-hmm. you know she needs to be able to kind of be free to explore that 
Right. So, you know, you don't want that stuff handed down to you either. Mm-hmm. You, everybody, I think everybody who's here on the planet, you know, the minute you get here, I think you need to kind of carve out your own destiny and you need to fight your own fights and kind of, you know, do your own work and learn your own lessons. And, and the saddest and I, thing is how many people can relate to these people. They'll be like, oh, that poor rich. Yeah, right. Or, yeah. Hmm. But it, it is. I mean, that was the thing. I almost think it's a burden. Um, you know, if you, I think all of us, again, you know, if life is a game and, you know, we're all, you know, we kind of all come here. It's like, it's like if you play Street Fighter, you know, there are certain things that you're really good at or certain secret moves. And then there are certain things that you're not so good at because you can't be good at everything. But like in starting out at life, you probably have like one or two things really going for you. Um, you know, maybe you're attractive, maybe your family's financially comfortable, maybe you're very clever, maybe you're really entertaining or charismatic. But then all of the other areas, you have to spend your entire life either building those areas out, improving them, or finding, you know, a way to succeed, you know, with your various gifts and handicaps and how to juggle all of that. I, I, I mean, right now I'm like 44 and right now it feels like, you know, the whole purpose of life is to really kind of like balance that out and kind of really work with that, you know, um, that whole algorithm of, of, you know, haves and have nots. And, you know, good and bad. Well, like the inhalation, exhalation, you know, it's kind of that, you know, things are abundant and things are good. And, you know, you kind of have that moment of like, oh, I'm here. And then everything goes again or hard times come up. And again, even with this, like we didn't have lockdown for ages and people are starting to feel relaxed Mm -hmm. and now we're locked down again. Mm -hmm. Inhale, exhale, high tide, low tide. Right. That's a great read to to look at things. I've been thinking about this um, ever since the last time you mentioned this to me. Mm. you're absolutely right this is the way of the world and the the Tao Te Ching even 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 talks about it <laughs> no does it I mean yeah. but it's the nature of life it's like a cycle like it and I think the most powerful thing about kind of using breathing as a metaphor is it reminds you every time you breathe you know things are good things will be hard you know and you're kind of like you know good bad you know um ideal not ideal challenging mm relaxing however you want to put it mm-hmm. are you reading the I Ching yeah yeah it's a it's real mindfuckery of a book <laughs> um... <laughs> no you've given it to me I have it and I like it's one of those ones that's on my it's, a, it's on my bookshelf and it's like mm-hmm. I'm going to tackle that and I have actually now with lockdown I could it's where just, were you at on the I Ching I'll do a read club with you pages of like in fullness there is the void in the void there is fullness <laughs> and it's just like you know, oh yeah 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 this kind of stuff which it uh, is it's, that stuff. it's almost meditative like it has a flow to it it is a cadence mm. it's like ding 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 it's I don't know I like it no I think yeah you're absolutely right mm-hmm. but I think it's like what is it like when you look at all like the prophets and stuff there was a lot of those kind of wisdoms that are are yeah. handed down that like every you know it kind of transcends culture and that everybody will have it but like what you were saying about um neil gaiman talking about speculative fiction or jordan peterson and it's just you know many of us have the same idea around something some people just really nail talking about it or you know a piece will be written and, and kind of come out and then you're like oh hey what is it it's an emergence theory isn't it where like several people have the same idea at once yeah. all over the world and then they start talking about it and again you know it's kind of like is it because we're all connected you know and we are all one or is it you know kind of everything that's happening or in you know, the fact that we're influenced by what we see and and what's happening in the world or even with the internet although 
um, emergence theory totally predates the internet. Mm. You saying we are all one? Just I'm so sorry, but just just flashed me back into the apprentice. <laughs> oh, speaking of, like I'm waiting to. So you were on the billboard. I I was I was coming from the gym the other night, and I was on the motorcycle, and that's why I took the photo. And um, it was so funny to see you on a billboard here in Thailand. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I felt really proud. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and the next time I see it again, um, I'll I'll definitely get a better picture, and hopefully, I won't be on a motorbike. Thank you. That's stop- a, so uh, <laughs> we have candidates from all over the world, right? So we have a group chat, and they're all like sending like this billboard. Oh, photos! Apparently, China and Indonesia. And You're Indonesia. joking! Oh, so it's really gone global then? Yeah, but I don't know. One so- is huge marketing budget, I suppose. So wait, is that why we are all one? Made you think of the apprentice? Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's one slogan. I believe we are all one. Oh, I always think of Genki Sudo. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he was the first guy that did it. Right, he came out. Yeah, the, the multinational flag. He went into politics. Yeah, he's and... now he's now oh, you know in Japan. Yeah, so he went into the, the music industry, and now he's into politics. Yeah, I think he's such an incredible human being. I mean, it's one of those things that I was like, wow. I think we're roughly the same age. And I was just like, wow, you've, you know, you've done so many amazing things, Ginky Sudo. And I don't know, it was just like, it was such a cool trajectory to go from, you know, kind of high profile MMA fighter to, yeah, musician, uh, performance artist to politician. Yeah, I would love to meet him. Uh, Genki Sudo is one of my favorites, all time favorites. Not just in so, fighting, but just an no, human being, right? So mm-hmm. Adam Kayum, um, one of my jujitsu instructor slash wrestling instructor here in Bangkok, yes. he um, he knows so much. That's where I was like, I was like, do you know Genki Sudo did music? And he's like, yeah, I think he fought him because we were having a chat about him oh, a couple of months ago. Oh, shit. I think he did fight him. Was it him or was it his mate? Now I'm going to have to look up Adam's fight record. B, he was like, he's such a lovely bloke. No, it was him because he's like, I think Genki Sudo knocked him out. But no, that's the beauty of like mixed martial arts. Like, because when you fought, like at the time, it's terrible. Like, you know, you're like, oh, I got knocked out or I I lost. But like later, like I watch fights where like I'm knocked out and I'm like, oh, you know, and I was like, oh, so-and-so, they're such a lovely person. And you can just see them like totally crushing your face and you're like, And you just laugh about it because it's, I don't know. I think the further away you get from events, the better perspective you have on it until all of a sudden it just becomes a really interesting story. Cause at first I think it hurts your ego. Like nobody wants to lose. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, or maybe like some people aren't as bothered by it. Although I think then if you're not as bothered by losing fighting, then you're not going to be able to stay. Yeah. yeah I was going to say you can't, <laughs> you can't fight for very long because you yeah. have to be hungry enough to want to win it. But yeah. um, but yeah, I know he was he was he was talking about it. I believe yeah, he said he did get knocked out by him, and I was like, oh shit, because this was a I was about I think four months ago. Let me check that out. Let me check. Mm-hmm. Oh, jiu-jitsu instructor getting KO'd by. by I know. Right? <laughs> no, well, he's lovely to work with because I'll do privates with him. So I'm still doing like the boxing and like I do a bit of jujitsu and and wrestling with with him. But the like the sport of jujitsu has changed so much. Yes. Like because. Adam Adam was doing it like in the early 2000s and the late 90s and so we're the same age and when the sport the sport has evolved incredibly like to be honest with you if I was to go and roll at a, at a gym now with like randos I wouldn't know what I was doing because all the moves that I have are totally different because nobody uses them anymore some of them they do but I think they're out of fashion or what have you 
even in the last five years has changed so much because of uh, the innovations of leg locks. Uh, the Denner death squad in New York had a lot to do with that. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, it's tremendous. Like back back when I was training, well, back, mm. <laughs> I know exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> like leg locks were almost seen as like dirty moves. They're like no, nobody really taught them, and it's it's legal, but nobody. They're played dangerous. Them. Yeah, because well, they're yeah. dangerous. They could blow out their knee really badly. Like I was always really respectful of, you know, kind of putting on a leg lock with MMA matches. Like, cause we would have to, you would obviously need to be prepared for them. Mm-hmm. But um, I knew plenty of people um, in MMA that, uh, oh God, it was like Shinya Aoki. I think Aoki had ended one of um, like a friend of mine's career. And it was like, you know, just by putting on a leg lock and he'd, he'd put it on really tight and the guy just never recovered. You know, again, it's and it wasn't like I mean, this is the thing about you know competition is you know it's not like anybody ever set out to to disable you know an opponent like usually they felt terrible about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just you know it's part of the sport. But yeah, I think that that's why that leg locks were almost kind of seen as a dirty thing. But people would do them still. Like you know, if you competed, you would pull them out. Yeah, the the knowledge of the, I think. So right now the knowledge of leg locks is just phenomenal. Like like I oh. I don't even know where to begin. So I feel like a lot of the injuries and this is something I did not believe in starting mm. out. Uh they were like, actually Elvin, like shoulder locks are more dangerous than leg locks. I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> really? Yeah, but now I I have to I have to make the argument that a lot of injuries that came with leg locks mm. came from not understanding how leg locks worked. Because people would yes. spin in the wrong direction and talk their own knee and things like that and not tap when it was tight. Because leg locks are, are a whole different ballgame off, of, off by themselves. Because you don't feel any pain. It mm. just breaks, right? But you know it's on. I mean, but it kind of goes back to that whole like philosophy, like you do it to yourself, right? Yeah. Um, because it is. It's like if you tap. I mean, it's very rare, and but it does happen, you know, sure. But it's very rare that, you know, if you know something's on, you tap. Like, they'll let go. Mm-hmm. And I was bad. I never used to tap. Like I was, I was totally a victim of my own ego countless times. Uh, I did that too. Oh, did you? I always feel like you were better than I was in terms of ego. Like I always feel like you're a bigger person. I'm glad to know that you're not. Well, no, I'm not. I feel bad. None of that feels like. None of this competition like lady watching. No. Oh God! Actually, the worst thing was is as a girl, I was like, I'm not going to tap. I'm going to show this guy how strong I am, and that's going to ensure that you never get laid. Men do not. <laughs> yeah, intimidated, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that was the problem. Like, I still think about that now. I was like, oh my God. I was like, I think a lot of men really get intimidated by the fact that I'm so muscular. Like, guys will, like, they love to train with me in the gym. But, like, mm-hmm. I think if I was to ever ask them out for a coffee, I think they would freak out. <laughs> I mean, they're You're a fantastic girl, Neil. Yeah, no, no, I- it's fair. <laughs> well, it's good to have coffee. But no, but it's one of those things that I think about it and it's like, you know, because it is, it's like, if I was a guy, I was like, oh my God, if I was a guy, I was like, people would be like, wow, you're so strong. But as a woman, <laughs> it's, it's kind of intimidating, I think. I forget about it, but like, my guy friends will tell me that. <laughs> like, oh, you might be scaring some people. <laughs> they, you know, but I was like, oh, they just need to be more comfortable with their, their own masculinity and their strength. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't diminish who you are for. Uh, no, gosh, that. no. <laughs> Uh, I'm not losing my gains over that. Like, forget it. I'd rather be alone. 
<laughs> uh, I'm dating Sam now, who's a she's a pro boxer, so she's like, she's incredible. Yeah, um, so we've had conversations about this. I don't know. I don't feel I don't feel my masculinity diminished in any sense. In fact, I, it's, mm. it's great to date somebody who is comfortable in their own skin and comfortable with her own skills and has her own passion. It's it's mm. Well, they share your interests as well. I mean, <clears throat> how long has she been boxing for now? Uh, about seven years. Oh. Yeah. oh, wow. So, gosh, she's been boxing for ages. Yeah. Um, she what just got her into it? Uh, evolved and uh, she broke her, broke her back. So, going back to the doctor's thing, right? So many, it's so corny, oh. but I've heard so many doctors say that you've never trained competitive sports again. <sighs> Doctors. So <laughs> I feel like doctors are wimps. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's up with that, doctor? doctor? No doctor is ever going to want to treat me now. It's like, oh, so I'm a wimp, bitch. <laughs> like, I didn't mean to. I think they look at things too much in a, in, a, in a structural way. Like, you know, like, you know. Yes. But the human mind is incredible, yeah, man. Yeah, like you're right. You're absolutely right. But no, but exactly this belief. And again, this, I love how like things become like, it totally ties back into what we were saying about books. You know, if you believe something is possible, you know, you can often transcend, you know, what somebody tells you about it. Mm -hmm. So she, how did she break her back? Uh, So she was an art student. She was smoking like 40 cigarettes a day. And Mm. uh, she was just really not taking care of herself. And she jumped straight into into sports and she was like wow well, I'm gonna do this um, so she trained every day and, and she just broke her back training like she literally had a fracture in her back so no. yeah, oh my she trained God. through it until she couldn't train anymore so so the doctor was like you'll never play competitive sports again um, Sam was like fuck you doctor <laughs> and she Good. went back to the gym sat on a, she was literally sitting on a stool in front of the heavy yeah. bag and she was punching the heavy bag and one of the <laughs> and the boxing coach walked passing and he was like what the fuck are you doing and she was like well i can't kick because it broke my back so i'm gonna work my punches and that was wow. how the whole thing started yeah see this doesn't surprise me at all that she's your girlfriend now I mean, <laughs> she sounds like lot. she really compliments you no I mean, <laughs> thank you um i'm not so cool like, right now we'll probably just rest my back <laughs> but <laughs> i was just gonna right thank you <laughs> No, but the fact that you know she's hungry, or you know that like she won't be told. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and then um, and so now she's pro. She's pro now. She she turned pro in Thailand actually, but she had to fly back because of COVID. Oh my gosh! When did she? Where was she fighting in Thailand? Um, or was she training for or just competing? Oh, okay. Yeah, she used to be sponsored at Tiger Muay Thai. Oh, oh, okay. Actually, Valentina, oh gosh, she might have already fought by now. Now, Valentina Schwenko is fighting today. Mm. She's so sweet. I actually trained with her at Tiger Muay Thai. Um, oh, you trained with uh, Schwenko? Yeah, oh. I did. I pulled with her. And so, Schwenko is like one of the only fighters I've ever encountered that actually walks around close to her weight. Although, for her to be, because she, she holds a title in like several weight classes, so mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me. But yeah, no, because I rolled with her and... um. Oh, she was tremendous. She's like super talented, but for her weight, she's really strong. And and yeah, so I you know I had a role with her and stuff, and like we chatted afterwards. She's she's super lovely, um, gangster as fuck. And then 
about five years, no, four years later, I was in um, the UFC Performance Institute in Vegas mm-hmm. training with um, my friend Sarah Morris. And, you know, we're in there, we're training and we're in the showers. And all of a sudden I look over and Valentina's there. And I was like, oh, and she's like, hey, I remember you from Tiger Muay Thai. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I wouldn't expect that she would remember me. And yeah, and, and again, like I think, it was either her, I think she bought a plane for her sister and her sister now competes in um, MMA and they both train over in uh, Phuket together. But yeah, no, it was so remarkable. Like she remembered me and I was like, oh, wow, hi. And she's like, yeah, I remember rolling with you. And I was like, oh, thanks. But yeah, no, she's um, so talented. And yeah, she's um, she's fighting Andrade today, isn't she? Actually, Sarah fought Andrade. And um, I think Sarah broke her elbow or something fighting Andrade or had broken it right before she fought her. Yeah. Damn, um, Valentina's badass. She one of my favorite MMA uh, fighters. Yeah, general, not even not even like male or female. Like I, I love Valentina. Mm, no, she's so well-rounded and, and talented, and she's just yeah, she's she's a really great, she's a really lovely person as well. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of fighters are though. I guess. Mm. Well, every so often you get a fighter who's who's you know obviously you know struggling with something and probably not the nicest person, but right. a lot of them. Yeah. So, yeah it, it just breaks down all the bullshit. Like, you, yeah, you have to be real with people in the gym, right? And mm. yeah, I would, I would love well, to. Your ego can only like stay stay inflated for so long if somebody's mm-hmm. beating out of you every day. <laughs> yeah, somebody's gonna head kick the ego out of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's um, true. Are you training today? Aren't you? Sorry. Are you training today? Do you you no, still train? I trained yesterday. Ah, ah okay. Yeah, I boxed with Sam. That was a very ego uh, diminishing. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good. And I mean, it's good that you guys are able to kind of like, you know, stand and work out as equals. Because I think sometimes that's difficult. Like if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're both training, like you can turn into something competitive, which, you know, can sometimes be unhealthy. Uh, no, she's the pro athlete right now. So everything's about her. And uh, I, it's it's one of those weird so I'm like a pretty small like Asian guy, right? It's one of those weird You're not times small. Where <laughs> I'm like sixty plus kilos. Most guys are usually a, a little bit bigger than me, even in Singapore. Oh. It's one of those rare times where I can actually use my like reach You're and size waiting. advantage on somebody else. So I'm like, I'm gonna make use of this shit <laughs> because oh Samantha is fast as fuck. Like, <laughs> what's her weight? What does she weigh? So you're sixty four, and what's she's that? Like sixty. Oh, oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For a girl, then she's like, she's a good size because a lot of the Singaporean uh, women that used to compete in a lot of the different sports at the gyms when I was there were, were much smaller. They were like under under 60. Some of them were under 50 even. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's real weightlifting and stuff now. Like the sport is changing so much here. So. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's really exciting because there were so many more girls doing it even right before I moved out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I don't know, I I'm a huge fan of, you know, kind of sports for all, I guess. Me too. I think it's a we are all one kind of thing, but but it is. Not to be corny, but it's it's a huge unifying factor, right? Yes. But I mean, I think that's exactly it with sports. You know, no matter what your background, what your, you know, your pay grade, what your education, you know, what neighborhood you live in, everybody steps in on the mats and, you know, it, it levels you. None of that yeah. matters. I wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for sports. Oh, yeah. Right? Did we? 
I think <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. I didn't compete with you. I reffed I reffed one of your matches. Yes. So I don't think I've yeah, because I was like I was way heavier than I am way heavier than you now even. But yeah, as I said, I think I've always competed in uh, over 68, and very every, every so often I would do an open weight, but it was rare. It was so how we met was I was asking around the, the jiu-jitsu community because I had I, I had problems with grinding my teeth, and and mm-hmm. yeah, so so uh, we we chatted and you saw that and we chatted on each uh, with each other through Facebook messages, and we met up for Bakute oh and God. here we are now. I totally, yes. Actually, while I was in Copenhagen, I ended up doing this weird thing called, um, so there's a woman out there who runs that um, game I was showing you, which we'll have to talk about next week. That like deserves its own time slot. But she does this thing called face yoga. And I think it sounds kind of gimmicky, but she ran a workshop for teeth grinding. <clears throat> I will have oh, to send you her details. No, she's incredible. Oh. I um, I'm finding a huge difference in, you know, kind of like my jaw and my teeth grinding as well. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll have to send you. I'll have to send you that. I completely forgot. Are you still grinding your teeth? Uh, much less so, but okay, okay you know me. Mm, no, it's like all these weird things that you can do to basically release your face muscles and your jaw muscles, but it's all connected, like everything, I suppose, right? So, yeah. you know, your jaw muscles will be connected to um, your erector spinae and your neck and your shoulders, but all the way down into like, you know, your hips and your diaphragm. Um, we have it in neurokinetic therapy as well, but... Um, she has all these different exercises to relax your face, which helps with, um, you know, like the, the lines you get from all the weight cuts. Mm-hmm. So it helps with those. And then the other thing is, is it basically relaxes your entire jaw muscle and there's a whole process to doing it. But it's really interesting. I ended up doing like a two-hour workshop with her when I was in Copenhagen. Right. Cool. Please, please send yeah. me a link. I will. I will. Boom. Look, Danielle, uh, it's been an mm-hmm. hour. And- yeah. Our first podcast is <laughs> it flew by. I was done. like, <laughs> I'm not even gonna edit it. I was like, this time I was like, I'm just gonna put it out as it is, and then we can start refining it. <laughs> Boom. And to all our readers who stayed with us till the end, not readers, but listeners, listeners. stayed with us till the end. Thank you so much. Yes, um, thank. It's you. been a pleasure speaking with you, Danielle. And you, as always. And oh. yeah, I think we'll be doing this again next month. Um, hopefully, we can bring a guest on as well, and we can go okay. from there. Yeah. Right. We'll see you listeners right. next month.